Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? How many of you got away on spring break? Raise your hand. A few of you? We had a bunch of people here the first hour. Not one person raised their hand. I felt so bad for them. I thought there'd be more of you away. I saw a lot of Facebook um, uh, entries this week. I, my life seems so bad compared to where <laughs> people in these tr- tropical places and swimming and having all these fun things. I was here, uh, although it was fun because most of the staff was gone. <laughs> not, not that I don't like them, but uh, it was very quiet, so uh, I, I enjoyed it. Anyway. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 2, New Testament, Luke chapter 2. As you know, Easter is only two weeks away. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Easter is one of those unique times of year when people think a lot about Jesus, which is a good thing, right? Uh, But my concern is that after 2,000-some years, people have, um, have a tendency to exchange the real Jesus with a 21st century version. You know, one who caters to consumers rather than calls followers to sacrificial and radical living. And I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong on that, but whatever the case may be, our faith as Christians is, 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 is founded on a real person who lived at a real time in a real place. And so my hope is that over the next two weeks we can sort of reclaim Jesus in, in, a, in a more accurate, historic sense. Uh, That said, uh, most of us are familiar uh, with, I'm guessing, with the Luke 2 account of Jesus' birth, right? The manger, the shepherds, the angels, all of that. But once the shepherds leave Mary and Joseph, we we often stop reading. But there's so much more to the story. For example, here in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we're told, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So this this may or may not come as a shock to you, but Jesus was Jewish. And I point that out because it's easy for us to forget that. It's easy for us to cast him in a, in a rather contemporary, uh, comfortable Gentile mold. Uh, but if and when we do that, if we, if we view Jesus' life and, and teaching simply through the lens of 21st century Western American culture, we lose out. Uh, it's problematic. In his book, Simply Jesus, Christian theologian, New York Times bestselling author N.T. Wright emphasizes this. He says, we have to make a real effort to see things from a first century Jewish point of view if we're ever, if we're ever going to understand what Jesus was truly about. Another New York Times best-selling author, James Carroll, in his recent book, Christ Actually, the Son of God for the Secular Age, states that Jesus was Jewish can seem an obvious statement today, but in fact, the idea has barely penetrated the shallow surface of Christian theology. Carol goes on to argue how it's, import, it's imperative for us to make the Jewishness of Jesus the first lens through which we view him. And I agree with that. Keeping Jesus' Jewishness in, in, in mind is critical to accurate interpretation. In fact, the text we just read 
uh, offers some important information related to this very thing, right? We're told on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise a child, he was named Jesus. Now, that statement may not seem like a big deal at first, but it really is. And it tells us that Jesus was, was born into an ordinary Jewish family. Joseph and Mary were, you know, were devoutly religious people who from the very beginning set out to raise their son in compliance to Jewish law and tradition. And the law stated that after the birth of a male, of a male of a son, a male child, uh, that on the eighth day, when the child's blood clots efficiently, he was to be circumcised. And you know, it was expected, it was custom, it was law. And it wasn't just that the parents had to agree to the procedure, fathers had to perform it. I cannot imagine that. Uh, my wife gets nervous when I pick up a knife to cut vegetables, right? I, I'm thinking surgery on an infant probably is out of the question. But uh, in, in first century Israel, that's the way it was. That's how it was done. Dads performed the circumcision in their homes. It was a family responsibility and an essential part of, of Jewish heritage. As you may know, its origin is traced back to Abraham, father of the nation. God made some serious promises to Abraham, promised to give him a son, and through that son create a great nation, through that nation bless all the peoples of the world. And God said to Abraham, this is a promise I'm making to you. It's an everlasting covenant. I'm going to keep my word. This is what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise all your male descendants as a sign of this covenant between us. And so circumcision served as a symbol marking the male flesh of the Israelites. It was an intimate, personal reminder they belonged to God. It was a physical, cultural, traditional, legal, spiritual event. It was also the time when uh, when a boy was officially named, and that name was made public. And so as their son was circumcised, Mary and Joseph give him the Hebrew name Yeshua, which, me which means the Lord saves. Um, the English version, Joshua. The Greek version, Jesus. And according to Hebrew scholars, it was one of the most common names in first century Israel at the time. In fact, it was the fifth most popular. Interestingly enough, Joseph was the second most common man's name. Mary was the number one woman's name. So in many respects, I mean, this, was a tr this truly was an average, ordinary Jewish couple who gave their son a very ordinary name. And they were good religious people. Again, they did what they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it. And so following the birth of the child, the law said a woman had to wait 40 days before she went to the temple. And so they waited. And we're told that when the time came for purification rites required by the law, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to, the, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. All Jewish families did this. Everybody did this. Parents would wait until the time was right, and then they would go to the temple, and they had to make two sacrifices. For the dedication of the child, they had to sacrifice a lamb, and on behalf of the mother, a bird. Levitical law, however, uh, made an exception and said if a family couldn't afford a lamb, they could offer two birds instead. Which means what? It means Joseph and Mary were also a poor, ordinary Jewish family. Um, now, once they did what was required by the law in Jerusalem, uh, they returned, we're told they returned to Galilee to their own, their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew, it became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Translation. This ordinary couple takes their son home and as, a good Jewish, as good Jewish parents, raise him to be a good Jewish boy, implying that Jesus got an ordinary education. 
You know, like all the other kids at the time, he would have started school um, somewhere around five or six years old. And then as he, as he got older, eventually he'd go to school only half a day and the other half learn an ordinary trade, usually the family trade. And we know that Joseph was a carpenter. Now, most scholars agree that there probably wasn't a, lot, uh, you know, a, a ton of work in Nazareth. It was a small village, and so it's possible Joseph made furniture or more likely he commuted to work because uh, just four miles northwest of Nazareth was the great Roman-built city of Sepphoris. And Sepphoris was the regional center for Roman law and, 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 and commerce. But in, four, uh, in the year 4 BC, there was a Jewish uh, rebellion there. Uh, the Romans didn't do well with rebellion, and so they, they basically destroyed the whole city and either killed or sold the Jewish rebels into slavery. Four years later, about 1 AD, right around Jesus' birth, a rebuilding of the city began, and, and it, was a, it was a big deal, and so with a lot of construction going on, carpenters, um, masons, laborers from 30, 40 miles around would have, would have been needed and, 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 and found employment. So there's a good chance Joseph worked in that city. Whatever the case may be, uh, Jesus learned the trade, and he was referred to as a carpenter later later in life. We also know Jesus was ordinarily devout. Uh, like all good Jewish people, he, he followed Levitical law, he celebrated all the religious festivals. You know, here in Luke 2, we're told that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover and Jesus accompanied them. We, we, we know he celebrated Passover right up into the time of his arrest and crucifixion, right? The Apostle John, in his biography, uh, records how Jesus observed the Festival of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day celebration where people would, would set up, and they still do, people set up outside uh, temporary booths or shelters made of uh, branches, sticks, leaves, and they stay outside in these shelters uh, for a week as a way to remember how when the nation was wandering through the wilderness, how God, how God protected them and how God guided them. John also notes that Jesus observed the Festival of Dedication an eight-day event commemorating the dedication of the temple in 165 B.C., the Hebrew word uh, for dedication, Hanukkah. So Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, sometimes also known as the Festival of Lights. Here is my point. All throughout his life, Jesus honored all the Jewish laws and customs and festivals. We also know he was actively involved with the, sort of the everyday, ordinary religious activities. For example, later in life, after traveling around Galilee, uh, Jesus went back to Nazareth, and on this, we're told on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, i.e., Jesus attends a religious service just as he had done his whole life, which means, which means he prayed, he tithed, he fasted, he sang, he read, studied, and recited scripture, just like everybody else. So there's no, there's no question Jesus was raised in this, this ordinary Jewish family. He had an ordinary name. He received an ordinary education. He learned an ordinary trade. He observed all the Jewish uh, customs and festivals and p participated in um, everyday, ordinary religious activities. In every respect, he was, he was a good, ordinary Jewish guy. And that's how, um, that's how everyone in his hometown viewed him. That's how they knew him. Until this one Saturday when in Nazareth... He goes into an ordinary temple, an ordinary synagogue, that is, and says something quite extraordinary. Just so you know, 
uh, in first century Israel, a synagogue service had sort of a liturgy to it. It had this, it had an order to it. The first things that first things that were done were there would be um, a number of prayers and blessings offered, and those would be determined by the date or time of year. Uh, after they were done, uh, that would be followed by the congregation reciting. Uh, the text, Old Testament text of Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema of Israel. Shema means to hear. And so the people would stand together and they'd say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then after reciting the Shema together, uh, the scriptures would be brought out, scrolls of scriptures, and uh, someone would read from the Old Testament prophets uh, and and offer sort of a devotional thought on the text. Sometimes it was a traveling rabbi that did it. Sometimes the synagogue leaders would invite a respected person from the community to read and to speak. And apparently on this particular Sabbath, uh, they, they asked Jesus to do it. Why? Well, again, by this time, he had been traveling around Galilee, gaining a reputation as a wise, a good, wise teacher. And so, so when he comes back home, people were excited by that, man. They were excited he was here, that he, he was one of their own. You know, he was one of their own. And so they were, they were thrilled to have him in the synagogue reading and speaking. I'm guessing a lot of people were also excited and very curious uh, to hear about which religious sect Jesus would be endorsing. Because in first century Judaism, rabbis, leaders, teachers would, would align themselves with one of four basic schools of religious thought each one taking a different view of the world and how God wanted them to live in that world. Uh, and given the fact that the Romans occupied Israel, you know, how to respond to that, that, op- that oppressive reality, how to live in that cultural context was a serious matter. So it was a hot topic. And so there were four basic religious groups with four varying opinions. Uh, there were the Sadducees, who did not believe in life after death, which made them sad, you see. <laughs> I have to say that because I learned that in grad school and it cost me a lot of money, you know, <laughs> to, to, to know that. So whenever I say the word, I have to, have to make sure everyone's clear on that. But it's true, they didn't believe in the after death. They didn't believe that in really supernatural stuff. They, they didn't believe in resurrection or angels or anything like that. So their response to Roman culture was to sort of embrace it, to assimilate, uh, in order to advance Judaism. They realized it wasn't an ideal situation, you know, but the Roman, these Roman pagans, they offered protection. They built great roads and, and generated commerce and business. And so the Sadducees figured, hey, let's tolerate the occupiers, we'll behave ourselves, we'll pay taxes, we'll enjoy Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and we'll still be Jews. The Zealots took the exact opposite approach. They absolutely hated the Romans and wanted to replace Roman government with a Jewish one. They had no interest in embracing that pagan culture. They wanted to overthrow it. They were all about insurrection. They were about creating, creating havoc. They figured if we can create, create enough havoc, enough trouble, perhaps the Romans would just get fed up and leave. And then there were the Essenes, And much of what we know about them, we learned from first century historian Josephus until 1947, when on the northwest coast of the Dead Sea, a shepherd was randomly throwing rocks in caves, trying to find a lost sheep, and suddenly heard the smash of pottery. 
And when he investigated, he entered the cave, he discovered what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some 981 ancient manuscripts, including the oldest, the second oldest surviving copy of the Hebrew Old, Test- Old Testament, dating all the way back to 400 BC. Well preserved. And those scrolls, uh, had, they had belonged to this, this Jewish religious sect, this group known as the Essenes. And many of the documents that were found uh, offer insight to who they really were. I mean, they were basically isolationists. They got out of town. They went out into the wilderness. They wanted nothing to do with the Romans. They ran away from them. They, were, they wanted to avoid any contact with them or the culture. They feared they, feared they would become too influenced by them, so they just went out on their own in their own little enclaves out in the wilderness. So the Sadducees embraced the culture. The Zealots wanted to overthrow it. And the Essenes, they wanted to isolate from it. And then the final group was the Pharisees, sort of the religious fundamentalists of the time, And their response to the Romans was to condemn them and to establish sort of this religious subculture marked by an ever-increasing number of man-made rules and regulations for people to follow, creating this separate, religiously insulated community in which only the most pious were welcomed and accepted, and those on the outside were judged with an air of righteous superiority. And so when Jesus was invited to read and teach in the synagogue, the locals, they wanted to hear his, his opinion on all this. You know, what was Jesus gonna say? Who was he going to align with? What was his opinion? Did, did he think God wanted uh, them to embrace pagan culture, overthrow the culture, run and hide from it, or insulate and get more rules and, and, and regulations to, to try and prove their own righteousness? Well, here's what happens. Uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah gets handed to Jesus, and he opens it, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sat down, because when you're in a synagogue, you stand up to read, you sit to teach. So he sits down, and I'm guessing everybody was just, just like focused on him, just waiting, anxious to hear what he was going to say about this particular text because it was messianic. It describes the anointed one, the Messiah, the divine Christ who would come with, 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 with good news of grace, rescue, healing, and freedom. And so Jesus sits down, and after reading this, he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Translation, I am the anointed one. I am Messiah. I am the Christ. And initially people were excited by that. I mean, we're told that they were absolutely amazed by the words of grace that came from his lips. They liked him. They liked that he was claiming to be the Messiah. Maybe he was. And Israel had been waiting for so long. This was, this was, this was very exciting. But that dynamic changed quickly when Jesus continues speaking. Because he says to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them 
but to a widow in Zarephath. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Nathan the Syrian. And when the people heard that, man, they, they bugged out. They just, they bugged out. They were absolutely furious. Uh, they, 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 they chased him out of the, chased Jesus out of the synagogue. They tried to force him out of town. They wanted to kill him. I mean, it, it, was, it was a crazy scene. You know, one second everything was falling, everything was calm, the next just total chaos. This group of worshipers turns into a violent, angry mob. Why? You know, what, what triggered that response? Because they knew Jesus. They all knew him. They all knew him. They knew he came from a good Jewish family. They knew that he was kind of an ordinary guy. What they didn't realize until they heard him teach was that Jesus was also completely revolutionary. He made, he made no attempt to fit into the accepted religious categories. He refused to align with anyone. And not only that, what he said, it, 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 it shook, it disrupted the religious status quo. By reading from the book of Isaiah, Jesus was claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah. People knew that. People were okay with that. They were excited about that, right? They were excited about this message of grace. Everybody liked the idea of God's grace, uh, you know, offered to the poor, to the blind, to the oppressed. They, they were excited that that was good news. That was good news. That's not what made them upset. It was the application. When Jesus explains to them how this grace thing was going to work, that it wasn't only for those in Nazareth. Things got ugly. Because Jesus warned them, you know, he said, look, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you. No prophet is popular in his hometown. You expect me to say what you want to hear, but I'm not going to do that. The truth is, just as Elijah was rejected by his own people and had to go to another country among Gentiles, and just like Elisha was rejected by his own people and had to go to another country among the Gentiles, that's where God's grace is going. And everybody knew what he meant. That this good news of divine grace and favor wasn't just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. In fact, it was for, for all the people of the world. And suddenly, this ordinary Jewish Jesus was not so ordinary, but actually revolutionary. Now, what, is, what does all this have to do with us? Because I was reading the text, and I'm reading about the culture, and reading what was happening, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with the church? And it got me thinking, you know, could it be, is it possible that just like Jesus, as his people, we need to be a bit more extraordinary, a bit more revolutionary in the way that we think, in the way that we live in the midst of our culture? I mean, haven't we in some ways established our own religious-type groups holding to our own opinions on how to respond to, the, to the, the culture around us? I mean, think about, think about the Sadducees who wanted to embrace pagan culture, right? They said, let's not make waves. We can promote Judaism through capitulation. That doesn't seem all that different to me, from Christians today who feel all we need to do is fit in, assimilate better, don't make waves. Maybe we can get some, some uh, big-time sports figures, big-time movie, Christian movie stars to say, I believe in Jesus, and we'll get the message out, we'll mainstream it, we'll popularize it. Or what about the zealots who wanted to overthrow the pagan government and create a Jewish one? 
I'm not sure that thinking was much different from some in the church today who are convinced what we, what we absolutely need in this country is more Christian politicians, more Supreme Court justices, and policies that align with our biblical standards. And then with believers in high places, we can legislate morality, we can change society from the top down. Think of the Essenes, the religious group who said, Mm-mm, we want nothing to do with the culture. We're afraid of that culture. We, we don't like it. We're going to ignore it. We're going to run from it. We're going to establish our own isolated communities. That doesn't seem too diff- different from, to me from followers of Jesus today who will only, only work in Christian organizations, go to Christian schools, have Christian friends, listen to Christian music, shop at Christian stores, buy Christian books, you know, do business with Christians from the business, Christian business directory. It's this fearful tribal mentality that if we, thinking that we, if, we, if we separate ourselves, we get our own little bubble, if we isolate enough, everything will be okay, everything's gonna be okay. And what about the Pharisees who sought to create a, a myriad of religious rules and regulations that made them look and feel superior to the irreligious people around them? And I'm not sure they were all that different from those in churches today who think all we need to do is regulate our behavior. You know, regulate it. How we live, how we eat, what we drink, how we dress, how we talk, how we entertain. And if we do that, then, then we can show people, we can show people what true spirituality is and we can set ourselves apart from all those people out there, those unrighteous pagans. Listen, could it be that like Jesus, as his followers we shouldn't fit into any of those categories? Is it possible that instead we should, we should simply be men and women of integrity who with humility speak of, of God and love and grace and actively engage with and fearlessly demonstrate God's love and grace to our world? I mean, according to Jesus, that's what, what we all really need, all of us, all of us. God's grace. Now, please hear me. Look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to influence society. There's nothing wrong with with Christians writing music, making films, engaging economically, uh, sharing education, running for political office, voting for someone who happens to be a Christian for political office. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking steps to avoid some of the unhealthy stuff that's endorsed by our culture. That only makes sense. There's nothing wrong with practicing personal spiritual disciplines. But none of, that, none of that's the goal. That's not the point of following Jesus. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we in the church could, can embrace, overthrow, isolate from, or, or religiously regulate and arrogantly judge the world. No. He came in love. He fearlessly engaged his culture. And he ultimately gave his life so that broken people like me, like you, can know and experience the good news of God's love and grace. From his own lips, right? That's what Jesus said this whole thing's about, divine grace. I mean, but let, let's not pretend, look, let's not pretend there's no tension that exists between the church and culture. There is tension. Of course there's gonna be some tension. And sometimes there's no clear-cut answer on how exactly we should, as God's people, respond or interact in, any, in, a, in a particular situation. Sometimes it's complicated. But think about Jesus. Jesus taught and modeled 
that the way true transformation happens, the way we can genuinely and spiritually impact our world is one life at a time. Fearlessly engaging with people, people who are different, and showing them the kind of love and grace that we ourselves have received, and making sure that they know this good news of Jesus is offered to them as well. It's fascinating to me uh, how the more things change, the more they remain the same. And understanding the first century culture in which Jesus lived is really important. And and yes, it's true, Jesus was Jewish, but he was far from ordinary. He was truly revolutionary. For he brought and embodied the good news of God's grace and favor, offering it to anyone who would believe and follow him. And I'm convinced God wants his people to live the same way today in our culture for the sake of those who need to hear about this grace. And my prayer is that if you're with us this morning, you haven't already in faith also chose to follow Jesus that you would do today and you too then can experience and know the grace he brings. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that um, there's always a bit of a tension between your people and the culture in which they live. It's nothing new. Um, And our our options, um, well, we have several of them as we see uh, with the first century, but those just don't, don't seem to reflect Jesus at all. He aligned himself with no one. Um, he brought this radical message of grace and forgiveness to his world, to his, to his town, to his community, to his region. And um, I believe you, you want us to do the same thing. We who, who have embraced Jesus, we who have experienced, both intellectually and experientially, have experienced you know, your, your love and grace in our lives, your forgiveness. It's not about changing the outside first, it's that your grace changes us from the inside out. And I, I believe you want us as, as your people to love the world around us, to serve the world around us, to extend grace and explain grace to those who just don't understand it, who, who are confused about it, who've been told one thing, that's this idea of working their way into heaven, and, and, and so it's confusing to them. And it is, it, it's, it's so simplistic, yet so revolutionary a message of your grace offered in Jesus. But we're thankful for it. And may your grace change each and every one of us today, I ask, in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, shall we? You know, there's a line in the song there, um, Oh, to be like you. I I hope you guys understand being a Christian isn't about trying to be like Jesus. It's not, it's not, you gotta be like Jesus and then maybe you'll get to heaven. If that were true, I would be in big trouble. Uh, You know, that idea 
is, is, is crushing, it's debilitating, it's, it's discouraging. No, no, no. We don't, we, we're not Christians because uh, of anything that we do. It, being a Christian means we've allowed Jesus to do it for us. We believe he has. The anointed one came and offered his life in our place that we might experience forgiveness. And we accept the offer, the gracious, merciful, loving offer of forgiveness in life. By faith we do that. That's what it means to be a Christian. But then what happens is God's Spirit begins to do, begins to do a work within us and slowly but surely, we do begin to be more like the Savior in the way that we live, in the way that we love, the way that we extend grace and serve uh, even the strangers among us. And, um, and that's what God calls us to do. That's what he calls the church to do and who he calls the church to be. So I hope you, I hope you get that. You know, I, I just recently had these two conversations going with two different people. One was uh, in a personal conversation. The other was uh, through email. And both of these folks told me the same story, that just recently they finally understood the meaning of grace and the meaning of Jesus. They said they had gone to church all their lives. And, you know, they were kind of giving up on the whole deal. Didn't re- and suddenly the light bulb went on and they realized there was nothing they could do. It was all about the grace of God and faith in Jesus. And they put their faith in him. And it's, it's, it's been a revolutionary thing for both of them. It's a cool story. And uh, that might be your story today. Maybe today's the first time you, you get it. And you're saying, yeah, I, I'm, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I believe. Would you just shoot me an email? Leave me a voicemail or something? Just tell me that story. I, it's, I, it's important for me to hear. I, I, want, I want to hear it. And because uh, I know it's true for some of us. Maybe you want to come down following service and talk to somebody more about it. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here for you. Okay? Uh, I invite you to come back next week. We're going to continue on. We'll take another look at Jesus from a, a little bit of a different perspective, first century. And I think there's a lot to learn from that one as well. So come back. I think we'll have fun together and learning. Let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. And now, Lord, as we leave this place, may we go, um, may we go with a, a, just a wonderful sense of your love and grace in our lives, a sense of forgiveness and freedom and healing, all the things that this good news brings us, all that Jesus offers. And may as we as his followers and your people uh, live our lives in such a way that we point people to you, their God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.